This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, and these are the words that he pens. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven in total left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she has seven. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor will they be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, and I would encourage you to do so, write this down. Point number one is the Sadducees' argument. That's what we'll look at first this morning. The Sadducees' argument. Mark begins by telling us that the Sadducees came to Jesus. The Sadducees are new characters in Mark's gospel. What do we know about the Sadducees? Well, this is the only place, actually, the Sadducees are mentioned in Mark's gospel. Not only the first time, but the only time the Sadducees are mentioned. It's generally believed that the Sadducees were the Jewish aristocratic party whose members came largely from the priesthood. They were the upper class, the upper crust. They were the who's who so to speak, in Jerusalem. They were wealthy. They were worldly. Uh, it was the Sadducees who controlled or ruled over the buying and the selling that was going on in the temple, which Jesus had just come and wrecked back in chapter 11. They were the materialists of the day. And as you can imagine, they were quite upset with Jesus when he interrupted their business enterprises in the temple. The Sadducees held that the Pentateuch, that may be a new word to some of you, the Pentateuch is just how we refer to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay, refer to that as the Pentateuch. Well, the Sadducees held that the Pentateuch were the only genuine scripture, and if a particular doctrine, the word doctrine just means teaching, by the way, if a particular doctrine or teaching could not be defended from one of these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then the Sadducees rejected that doctrine or rejected that teaching. And so since, according to them, this portion of Scripture failed to clearly teach a resurrection of the dead, they subsequently denied the reality of a literal resurrection from the dead. 
The Sadducees did not believe in the existence of an immaterial soul. They did not believe in life after death, which included a resurrection. They did not believe in any sort of final judgment. They did not believe in angels or demons. They were basically annihilationists. In other words, when you die, lights out, close the curtain, that's it. Okay? They had no eternal hope. No eternal hope. It was Paul that wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This certainly would have been a fitting motto for the Sadducees. The Sadducees come to Jesus with an ingeniously designed question. Notice the flattery that precedes the question. They address Jesus by the title, Teacher. But we should note that they have no respect for him, nor do they respect his message Then in verse 19, look at your Bible there. They remind Jesus of Scripture. Hey, bad idea. Bad idea. Okay, Jesus. Of course, they only held uh, the validity of the first five books of the Bible. But but my mind automatically goes to John chapter 1. It's like, Jesus Christ is the Word became flesh. Don't argue with him when it comes to the Word. It's a bad idea. Uh, But the Sadducees here come in verse 19 and they remind Jesus of some scripture. They remind him that Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers or for his brother. What the Sadducees are doing here is they're they're appealing to the Jewish law of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. Leveret comes from the the Latin word levir, which means brother-in-law. Keep your finger there in just a, for just a second in Mark chapter 12, but turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 25 for just a second. I want to show you the specific text that the Sadducees are appealing to when they're speaking to Jesus here. Deuteronomy 25, specifically verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 5, or 25, verses 5 and 6. Here Moses writes, if brothers dwell together, and if one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. That's the impetus for the law here. Her husband's brother shall go into her and shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. What is Moses saying here? What's what's Moses teaching? what, What is the leveret marriage law here? Well, Moses is saying that if a husband died without leaving a male heir, without leaving a, a male son, then his unmarried brother... Or if he doesn't have one, the nearest male relative was to marry his widow. Okay, are you tracking with me? Tracking with me here? All right, good. Now, the first son of that marriage, so the brother-in-law to the wife, the first son of that marriage was to be given the name of the dead brother and was to be considered the child of the first husband, the child of the dead brother. The purpose of such a law was to to prevent the extinction of the family line and also important, was to to, to keep the family inheritance intact. That was the reason for leveret marriage. 
And so the Sadducees come to Jesus with this hypothetical question that was designed, intentionally designed, to make the belief of an individual resurrection look absolutely absurd. The question was meant not only to discredit the idea of a resurrection from the dead, but also to discredit Jesus, who had twice already, once in Mark 8.31, second in Mark 9.31, where Jesus had claimed himself that he would rise on the third day. And so the question again, not only to design, ingeniously designed to discredit the idea of a resurrection, a literal resurrection from the dead, but also to undercut to dismantle Jesus, who he himself claimed that he would be resurrected on the third day. You see, from the Sadducees' perspective, they had constructed a puzzle that they thought Jesus could not solve. Again, bad idea. Bad idea. What they do here is they take Deuteronomy 25 and they wildly, wildly, grossly exaggerate it. In their scenario, it wasn't one brother, but there were seven brothers The first one married and died, and then the next one married the widow. The same with the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. Seven brothers marry her in succession after the previous brother dies. And after all the brothers die and the woman dies too, here is their question. Jesus, tell us, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. You see, the Sadducees thought that by asking that question, they rendered the idea of a resurrection completely ridiculous. We'll see how Jesus answers their question here in just a few moments. But friends, let me just remind you of a few things here. First, the resurrection is the cornerstone, the capstone, the keystone of the gospel. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel. Both Peter and Paul constantly preached a resurrected Christ. Peter said this, he said, This Jesus, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. He was crucified at the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it. Peter preaching a crucified but resurrected Christ. Paul similarly said in Acts chapter 13, And when they carried out all that was written of him or concerning him, speaking about Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Friends, I will submit to you that the resurrection is not just an important doctrine. It is a fundamental, foundational doctrine. As a matter of fact, you have to believe in the resurrection to be saved. You have to. You must believe in the resurrection to be saved. Romans 10 Verse 9, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And not only will you be saved, but you will follow likewise. For you too will one day be resurrected. Imperishable. Glorious. Secondly, let me just draw your attention to the fact, friends, that whether it's the resurrection or any other biblical doctrine... You and I, we need to be prepared for all kinds of questions that will come attacking our faith. That's exactly what we see taking place in the text here, right? 
It happens to be Jesus that's being attacked here. But we will be too. You must be ready for all kinds of attacks, all kinds of assaults on your faith. I mean, here might be some of the questions that come your way. Do you really believe in an intelligent designer? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God created the world in six literal days? That's not a hill that I'm willing to die on, but it is my position. Six literal day creation. Do you really believe that God wiped out all humanity, save one family in a global catastrophic flood? Do you really believe that? If God knew that people would sin, why in the world did he create them? Do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Now answer me this. Eternal punishment. Eternal punishment sounds incompatible with a loving God. Explain that. If God really exists... Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And tell me this, isn't Christianity nothing more than a glorified crutch for weak people? Religion is nothing more than a leash to control people. The Bible's been written and rewritten countless times. You can't trust that book any more than you can trust the child's game of telephone. How are you going to answer those types of attacks on your faith? I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. How are you going to answer those questions? What did Peter tell us? Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Your translation may say, set him apart as Lord. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Friends, we must know our Bible. We must know our Bible. And when these attacks come your way, you respond, and I'll say this again in about 20 minutes, you respond with the Word of God. You you don't have to try to come up with some cleverly invented argument. As a matter of fact, that will fail. That's the very thing that Paul said, I did not do. I did not try to convince you with wise and lofty and and, 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 uh, grandiose arguments of man. No, as a matter of fact, I resigned to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? So that the power for any change or transformation would not rest on me or my words, but would rest upon God. Always be prepared to make a defense and use God's word to do it. We see the Sadducees' argument there. Whose wife is she? If she's had seven husbands in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? That's the question. That's the argument question. And let me draw your attention to number two there on your outline. Write this down. The Savior's answer. The Savior's answer. Let me draw your attention to verse 24. Look there in your Bible. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The word translated wrong there. Is this not the reason you are wrong? 
It's the Greek verb planao, from which we get our word planet. Planet, or wandering bodies. The verb means to cause to wonder or to lead astray. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is you're leading yourselves astray by your biblical ignorance. You are mentally wondering. You've been cut loose from reality. You've been cut loose from reason. You've been cut loose from the truth. And it's interesting to note that the false teachers in Jude 13 are called wandering stars. Wandering stars. Planao. To wonder. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you're not grounded. You're not attached to any absolute truth. And therefore you wonder aimlessly. Now look at Jesus' first argument here. He says, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. First, he says, you do not know the scriptures. That's A there on your outline. Specifically regarding the eternal state. You do not know the scriptures. And Jesus is not speaking about the, the, uh, the, 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 the contents merely of the scriptures, but more the meaning of the scriptures. You don't know the meaning of the scriptures. Friends, I'll tell you this. To understand the contents of the Bible, you must be given divine enlightenment from the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul said the natural person, the lost person, the unconverted person does not accept the things of the Spirit. Why? And not only do they not accept him, but their folly or their foolishness to him. They're not able to understand them because... Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You see, to understand spiritual truth is not a function of human wisdom. Let me just rewind that statement. To understand scripture is not a function of human wisdom. You must have divine enlightenment. You must have the indwelling Holy Spirit to know more than the contents of scripture. Yes, there are many lost people. Who, who can quote large sections, portions of the Bible, who do not understand its meaning and are not governed by its power. Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. You see, the Sadducees were supposed to be experts in the Pentateuch, Matthew, Mark, or, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but they demonstrate that they don't even know the scriptures. And if you don't understand the scriptures, you'll buy into any false teaching that sounds good and you'll likely pro propagate it as well. If you don't understand the scriptures, you will buy into every false teaching, every wind of false teaching that comes. And not only will you buy into it, but you'll probably teach it as well. You'll probably propagate it. Secondly, Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. Not only do you not know the scriptures, but you don't know the power of God. When you don't understand the power of God, you will limit God to not being able to do anything that your mind or my mind cannot understand. Did you catch that? If you don't understand the power of God, then we will limit him. We will reduce him down to only being able to accomplish or do what our little finite minds can understand, grapple with, and get our hands on. But God is not like us. I mean, didn't God create the heavens and the earth ex nihilo out of nothing? How difficult could anything else be for God? Oh, what about creating man out of the dust of the earth or creating woman from man's rib? 
How about the universal flood or the parting of the Red Sea? What about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or the bringing down of the walls of Jericho? Is anything too difficult for God? The answer is no. Do you see the argument that Jesus is making here? He said, if you knew the power of God, if you knew the very things that, that existed in the five books of the Bible that you claim to be an expert in, then you would know that God's arm is not too short to resurrect a human body. It's not too difficult for him. And so what Jesus does here is he amplifies each of these reasonings. Uh, starting with the second, so Jesus is going is is to take them to task here over the power of God. We'll, we'll, we'll see him extrapolate that in verse 25, and then he'll go back to, you don't know the scriptures, and uh, he'll unpack that in verses 26 and 27. Uh, but here's what I want to do. Point number three uh, is this, the surety of a resurrection. Okay, each, each point that I've got here on your outline could absolutely be a multi-part sermon. Okay. We are merely going to scratch the surface on the five uh, points here under the surety of the resurrection that I'm going to give you. Uh, there is a lifetime of study uh, included in, in these statements, which we, we don't have the time this morning uh, to, to dive into in, in their entirety. Uh, but, but I at least want to draw them to surface. Okay? The surety of a future resurrection. Friends, the resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it now. It is the entrance into a new life that is markedly different. Okay? The first thing I want you to note here is you will rise from the dead. It's as good as gold. You can take it to the bank. Okay? You will rise from the dead. Let me draw your attention to the very first phrase there in verse 25. Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead... When they rise from the dead. Did you catch the word when there? Jesus did not say if they rise from the dead, but when they rise from the dead. Matter of fact, in John's gospel, Jesus said these words. He said, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, that's all by the way, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. But mark it, my friends, you will rise from the dead. You will. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than we are to arise out of our beds. And we don't have to worry about all these silly arguments like how can God put back together a body that was blown up in an explosion? Or what's, what's God going to do with the person who was eaten by a shark? Like where is that person now? Or, 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 or the, the silly argument, well, well, that person was cremated and, and their ashes were spread all over the globe. How is God going to put all the pieces back together? Well, the same God that spoke creation into existence ex nihilo can gather all of its consummate parts and put them back together all right one author wrote these beautiful words he said i once scorned every fearful thought of death when it was but the end of pulse and breath but now my eyes have seen past the pain there's a world that's waiting to be claimed. Earth maker, holy, let me now depart. 
For living is such a temporary art. And dying is but getting dressed for God. Our graves are merely doorways cut in the sod. You will rise. Consider Romans 8.35 and the following. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul goes on and he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death. Not even death. Friends, let me get your attention this morning. If you're here and, and, and you have any question, any, any shadow of a doubt that you know Jesus Christ savingly, I, I want to let you know that you were made for eternity. Young people, you were made for eternity. Singles, you were made for eternity. Men, you were made for eternity. Women, you were made for eternity. Those of you in here that are in your golden years, you were made for eternity. Every desire that you have, as a matter of fact, is a signpost pointing to eternity. Every longing for romance is a longing for ultimate romance with Christ. Every desire for intimacy is a desire for Christ. Every thirst for beauty is a thirst for Christ. Every taste of joy is but a foretaste of a greater and more vibrant joy that can be found in heaven. I mean, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if I find within myself desires in which this world cannot satisfy, the only probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for eternity. Every longing for better health is a longing for the new earth. All of your longings and desires are a shadow of things to come, but the reality, my friend, is found in Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him? By faith and repentance, do you know him? You will rise from the dead. You will spend eternity in the presence of Christ or in eternal punishment. Be there. There will be no marriage in heaven. Write that down. There will be no marriage in heaven. Look at uh, verse 25b. So everything after the first comma there. Jesus says they neither will marry nor will they be given in marriage. Now, uh, let me just say off the onset here, this is not to be understood as a letdown. Relationships in heaven will be of such a degree that they will satisfy better than the best of relationships here on earth. I mean, think about it for a second. Sin, grief, and loss will all be left behind us as we as believers experience the surpassing joy of new and more powerful abiding relationships, eternally abiding relationships. You see, marriage is necessary and it's suitable for the present world order. Why is that? Well, because death exists here. And so in order to, to keep the human race going on, which, by the way, there's one race, the human race. We're all agreed about that. A lot that goes on in our, in our world that uses the definition in a way that is divisive. There's one race, the human race. Now I forgot where I was. 
Let me, let me get back there for just a second. Death. That's where I was. That's where I was. I was at death. The reason that marriage exists today is because death exists. But in eternity, in heaven, after the resurrection, there will be no more death. So there will be no more need for marriage. There will be no more need for propagation of the human race. And so that's why Jesus says there will be no marriage in heaven. There won't be a need for marriage in heaven. Marriage is very purposeful now. It keeps the human race going, but it is also a vivid illustration, demonstration of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So it serves a very distinct and unique purpose in this time and in this place that will not be necessary after the resurrection. And that's not to be understood as loss. That's not to be understood as a letdown. That's not to be understood as a disappointment. Doesn't mean that you won't know people, including your redeemed spouse, if your spouse knows Christ. It simply means that marriage was designed by God for a specific purpose and time period that will be fulfilled in heaven. In the new earth, the, the church which is now the bride of Christ, will be the bride of Christ without the absence of sin. We'll be married to Christ and Christ alone after the resurrection. Friends, whatever has been good and valuable here on earth will absolutely be enriched in heaven. As a matter of fact, it was the psalmist that tells us in Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, what we do oftentimes, and this is a mistake, is that we create heaven in earth's image. And so we just extrapolate everything that we know, everything that we understand, everything that we can see, everything that we perceive. And we just import that into heaven. God says, no, that's not what heaven is going to be like. Whatever you think about when you think about heaven, it's greater. It's perfect because it's the absence of sin. There'll be no marriage in heaven. C, you'll have a glorified body in heaven. Amen? Let's try that again. You'll have a glorified body in heaven. Amen? Okay. All right. Uh, look at verse 25C here. And Jesus says, but are like angels in heaven. So you will rise from the dead. They will neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Now, it's important that we know here, that notice that Jesus does not say angels in heaven. He says like angels in heaven. Like every redeemed blood-bought saint, we will receive one day a glorified body. This body, the one that we will receive, unlike the body that we reside in now, will not be subject to the effects of the fall. There will be no more waging war with the flesh. There will be no more heart that's prone to wonder and leave the one we love. There will be no more mind that struggles to be fixated on heaven rather than the temporal things of earth. Your body will be raised imperishable. Imperishable. Paul says, for this perishable body, that's what we live in now. Everybody grab a hunk of arm there and just say, this is my earth suit. Okay? We're going to get a new one. Paul says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body, which is what this earth suit is. 
must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass what is written, death is swallowed up by victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There won't be any. There won't be any. No more sickness, no more disease, no more atrophy, no more failing, no more pain, no more loss, no more tears. All the effects of the fall will be permanently overruled and eradicated. What will you look like in heaven? It's a good question. Will you be recognizable? I'll submit that you'll be absolutely recognizable. Just as the resurrected Jesus is recognizable, so you too will be recognizable to those in heaven whom you knew and loved here on earth. It doesn't mean that we won't have relationships. It doesn't mean that we won't know people. It just means that all relationships will come to their intended full fulfillment and completion. And so relationships will look markedly different. We should not create heaven in earth's image. It'll be better. It'll absolutely be better. You have a glorified body on top of all that. D here, there'll be no more death in heaven. No more death in heaven. Look at verses 26 and 27. As for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? Okay, what Jesus is doing here is he's turning the argument back on the Sadducees. Have you not read the book of Moses? Do you not know your own scriptures? Specifically, Jesus says, in the passage about the bush. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. You're quite wrong. Now, here's what I want you to notice from the text here. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am. Present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, the Sadducees, who claimed to be experts in the Pentateuch, wrongly alleged the idea that a resurrection was absent from their own scriptures. What Jesus is saying here is if you knew your own scriptures, your own scriptures speak about the resurrection. In this passage, God identified himself to Moses, affirming that he is currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, God is implying here that those patriarchs are still alive and that God has a continuing relationship with them as their covenant-keeping God, even though they had physically died long ago. God is not the God of the dead. That was, that was the Sadducees' understanding of death. Annihilation, lights out, close the curtain, end of story, everything's over. The extinction of life. But God says, I am the God of the patriarchs. They live. They live. And there's going to be a glorious resurrection. And at the resurrection, there will be no more death. Death itself will be swallowed up. Jesus is essentially saying here that you don't know anything about the Mosaic law you claim to know. I mean, have you ever read the book? Because if you did, you certainly missed a few things. You certainly missed a few things. But Christians, just let me encourage you here for a second. The Sadducees were the intellectuals of the day. Okay? They were, they were the smart guys and the smart gals of the day. And so I want to encourage you not to assume that intellectuals, those who claim to know things, are actually smarter than you. 
Don't assume that intellectuals are smarter than you. The word of God is powerful. Now take note how Jesus answers the Sadducees. And I want to encourage you to resolve to do the same. I mean, look, all questions about God, all questions about man, all questions about life, all questions about purpose, all questions about salvation, all questions about eternity are answered in God's word. Notice that, that Jesus did not try to philosophize. He did not answer with conjecture. He wasn't reduced to a guessing game. And neither did he point to other authors as being primary over the word of God. What did he do? He answered the Sadducees' question concerning the resurrection with Scripture. Take note of that and resolve to do the same. God's word is sufficient. Friends, know your Bible and know it well. Matter of fact, the psalmist, I would encourage you, if you're looking for a verse to memorize, a couple of verses to memorize, write this in the margin. Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100. Psalm 119, 98 through 100. The psalmist writes this. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts, the psalmist writes. Don't assume that intellectuals are smarter than you, friends, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. God's word is sufficient for every matter of life and faith this side of eternity. Bank on it bank on it. Lastly, this morning, and yes, we are going to land the plane. You can know that you're going to heaven. You'll rise from the dead. There will be no marriage in heaven. Every relationship will be better. You'll get a glorified body. That's a good thing. There'll be no more death in heaven. And lastly, you can know you're going to heaven. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that you are going to heaven. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, if you will repent, it's the word metanoia. It just means to change your mind. Literally means to turn from your sin and to turn toward Christ. If you will repent from your sin and turn toward Christ and bring all of your heap of sin to him and lay it at the foot of the cross, Jesus will pay for it for you. He will pay for your sin. That's why he was crushed on Calvary's cross for the the full payment, the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath and anger against sin. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washes it white as snow. But you must, you must repent and trust Jesus. That's not Jesus plus your works. That's not Jesus plus your intellect. That's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. Christ and him crucified. Jesus in my place. His righteousness for my sinfulness. His perfect record for my sin-marred record. The greatest exchange in human history. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you repented of your sin? And have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone, the captain of our salvation? If so, you can know you're going to heaven. Clothed not in a righteousness that comes from the law, but in a righteousness that comes from Christ and Christ alone. Let me bring just a few quick points of closing application here. Friends, I would tell you this. Jesus still asks this question today. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? 
Like that's not a question that just exists here in Mark chapter 12. Jesus still asks that question to us today. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? I mean, how well do we know the word of God? How well do we know the word of God? I mean, the, the Sadducees here, they, they knew the Pentateuch. They memorized it. But had they been changed and transformed by it? Do you know God's word? Are you taking advantage of opportunities to get God's word in your heart and in your mind to marinate your soul in God's word? Friends, I, I want to encourage you to, to take every opportunity, take advantage of every opportunity to be a student of the word. I want to encourage you to plug into a Sunday school class. Friends, if you, I, I, let, let, me, let me just stay here. I am not trying to be a legalist, okay? I am trying to encourage you to take advantage of opportunities to grow, okay? So with that being said, let me just encourage you, if you're not plugged into a Sunday school class, you're missing out. You're missing out. If you want to know what you're missing out on, just ask one of your friends who goes to a Sunday school class, what they're learning, what God is teaching them, how they're growing and changing. Likewise, if you are not planning on plugging into a small group, you're missing out. There are seven wonderful opportunities sitting out on a table for you to be involved in a small group. And not only are there options for you, but there's options for your children here on Wednesday night as well if you have children. There's opportunities to grow and change. Take advantage of them. Take advantage of them. Attend one of our women's Bible studies. Men, make the quarterly men's uh, manly meal uh, a part of your schedule. Just go ahead and resolve. Go ahead and commit now uh, that you're going to be a part of those opportunities. Now, we understand that people get sick. People go on vacation. People like We're not legalists. But take advantage of great opportunities that are right there in front of you. Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures? And then secondly, Jesus still asks this question. Are you not in error because you don't know the power of God? I mean, ha has the Bible's information led to transformation in you? Has the Bible's information led to transformation? Do you know the passages, but do you know the power of God behind it? We've got to move from just learning the Bible to living the Bible. We do that by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't want to be one of those people that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, 5, who, who, uh, who has the appearance of godliness, but yet denies its power. Friends, what about you? Uh, are you looking forward to the future resurrection? I certainly am. We will rise, and we'll see him, and those that know him savingly will not only see him, but we will be like him. And I am so looking forward to that day. And I would tell you this too, every single one of us has a, f a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, and you just need to know that they will rise too, and they will stand before their maker as all, as all people will. And so there's great encouragement there to go and share the gospel. Don't you, we, we know not the day or the hour when Jesus Christ is going to step back into this world that he has made. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is risen, ruling, reigning, and soon returning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, such rich uh, content here in scripture. Lord, thank you that all of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 reveals who you are, your heartbeat for us, your will for our lives, how you want us to live and think, uh, Lord, what, what you would have for us so that we live in such a way as to please you. Uh, 
Father, I, t- I pray that you would, uh, as, as these precious people leave today, that your Holy Spirit would take the word that has been preached and would massage it into each individual heart here and that, that clear, uh, practical application would, would come out of the teaching of today's word. Lord, we want to grow, we want to change, we want to be different as a result of coming into contact with, uh, as a result of uh, an encounter with the God of the living world. We pray that you would make this so for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.